you for dropping in on this episode of Reading Between the Wines. I'm your hostess, Winona Glass, and I am joined by the Psalm of the South, Keegan Moore. Howdy. And today we are going to talk about Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson. This novel came out in November of 2019, and it is the novel of spontaneously combusting children. Totally normal. Not a topic. Not at all. Not a topic that's typically written about. Uh, Definitely written in an ingenious way in dealing with children's emotions and friendships and competitiveness and becoming Secretary of State of the United States. Yeah. All completely normal activities that happen in a book, right? Sure. (laughs) So our story opens with Madison and Lily. And this is a very cliched opening, I guess, in that Madison is the super rich girl. They're at this elite high school, and Lillian is the one who has imposter syndrome and does not have a lot of money, is there on scholarship, is there because she deserved to be there, and they are unlikely pair of friends. They're roommates, but they become very, very close friends. The issue becomes when Madison tells a bad joke. Madison tells a bad joke to her beautiful friends, and one of them gets mad at her and rats her out. For having drugs in her room. For having some blow in her desk drawer. And Lillian, being the good friend that she is and being the less powerful one in that relationship, takes the fall for her and gets kicked out of school. Well, Madison's dad convinces her and her mother Mm -hmm. to take the fall. Absolutely, because... Because Madison's going places. Right. And Lillian, you know, I mean, he can he can just throw some money their way and make the problem go away, right? Because that's what happens in these sorts of situations. Then the book transitions, and it's been several years. They've not heard from each other. Their friendship essentially ends after uh, that encounter. And Lillian gets a letter in the mail from Madison, which the book was written in 2019. <laughs> Who sends a letter in 2019 to your friend who you were in high school with and is like, I desperately need your help, and I know your life has gone nowhere since high school, so could you please become the nanny to my 10-year-old stepkids because they have issues, and I feel like— They have a unique affliction. Yes, they do. It is a (laughs) That is a very kind way of saying my stepchildren spontaneously combust. Exactly. But they had been writing letters to each other. I feel like it was Madison's way out of never thanking Lillian for taking the fall for $10,000 to ruin her life. And they just kind of have cursory stayed in touch. Right. And it's, but I feel like if you need this kind of help, it warrants a phone call, at least. I mean, at the bare minimum. Yeah. Hey, it's awkward. Yeah. Hey, so, um, by the way, know you kind of, your life sucks. You still live with your mom and you work in a dead end job and you're kind of going nowhere since I got you kicked out of school for 10 grand. Could you come and work for me? Just for the summer? Could yeah. you uh, nanny my husband's fire children? <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> okay. Well, and so she goes into the situation not quite understanding that the children spontaneously combust. And what's very unique about the situation is the children themselves do not get hurt in this. So I feel like it's very important to tell people the children do not get hurt, but the fire is very real. So it burns everything around them, like the earth or clothes, clothes, people, you know, random things. 
furniture, if they're sitting on the couch, like it, it's still a big deal that they catch on fire, but the kids themselves never get hurt. So it's just a very unique way of dealing with childhood emotions and how impassioned kids get whenever they feel things, right? They don't, they don't know how to regulate their emotions. They feel it and they just catch on fire. So Lillian, I feel like really tries to come up with innovative solutions to keep the kids from spontaneously combusting. She keeps them in the pool. They do yoga. They practice meditate. Yeah. They practice breathing. uh, They meditate. They do all different kinds of things. Like she really does try. And then she researches all of these innovative solutions, like the same stuff that they use for firefighters, that same, um, Teflon spray. Yes. And the stuff that's made out like the, the clothes, but then she finds this gel that they use actually for stunts in movies. And she essentially bathes the kids in this gel like two or three times a day to keep them from catching on fire. So it suppresses the fire inside of them, I guess is the best way to put that. So the gel, they stay cool on the outside, but the fire still can happen. It just doesn't burn everything and all of your clothing. Uh, So she has all of this like fire retardant clothing made for them. Um, Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they catch on fire anyway. There's still, even when Lillian is working very hard to be there for these kids and to be the person that they can count on, there's still this like imbalance in Madison and Lillian's relationship because Madison really does treat Lillian like a, like a employee. Like she has her and the kids live in the pool house, like away from the family because Madison and Jasper, her husband with political ambitions, have another child together named Timothy and that is the priority. So that is the family unit. And then Bessie and Roland, who are the 10-year-old twins, are kind of the redheaded stepchildren who live out in the pool house with Lillian, aren't part of his persona, Jasper's persona that he plays out in public. Right. These kids are not part of it. Only Timothy is part of it. Even though there's like Lillian is really working hard for her and really trying to make everything work for her family, Madison really just still kind of keeps her at arm's length and doesn't really let her in to her new life. You know, they're still not really friends. She's just an employee with a history, right? So there's two other employees that work for Jasper and Madison, and that is Mary and Carl. Carl. Carl the C. Mary and Carl. And Mary is kind of like the housekeeper and the chef and part nanny to Timothy, just kind of the keeper of the house, a house manager, if you will. And then Carl is the driver slash security slash like logistics manager. Damage control. Definitely damage control. (laughs) Does a lot of research of like how to hide these stepchildren, what different things he can do. I don't know. This was just a really different book about family and the way that families operate and the different things that families go through and blended families as well. Anyway, everyone kind of blamed Jasper's ex-wife, Jane, for this genetic condition that the kids have. Like, she was the—she's the one who carried this—what did you call it earlier? Unique— Affliction. A unique affliction in the genetic makeup. Uh, Then 
the book transpires, a lot goes on. I'm very much jumping ahead here to the end when Jasper is being appointed as the new Secretary of State for the United States of America. And Timothy, the golden child of Madison and Jasper, spontaneously combusts. Like on TV. On TV. Behind his dad. On the steps of the Capitol. (laughs) Yeah. And Madison drops him, and he's a toddler at this point. He's like four, five. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, he's very young. And Madison drops him because she's getting burned, right? I mean, it... And she's a little shocked by this. I found that very kind of serendipitous that everyone had made Jane the enemy, like driven her completely out of the kids' lives because of this unique affliction that they have. And actually, it's Jasper that's the problem. I don't know. I kind of was frustrated that Jasper dealt with it in a very political manner and that He's essentially wanted to send the kids away to boarding school and put Timothy in some rehab facility that he would be monitored for six months. Alternative school for troubled children. Yeah, they're not troubled. In Montana. Yeah. At a ranch. Come on. They're not really troubled as much as they like need a dad that doesn't think they're odd. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it was uh, a Lillian quote. She was like, I wondered if Jasper had fathered any children out of wedlock. Yes. The guest lo- the guest house would become a home for wayward children who spontaneously combusted. I like she said, she kind of should figured- I send a pamphlet to <laughs> yeah. all these women who he's probably fathered children with? If your kid spontaneously combusts, contact me. <laughs> it was it's just a really kind of a unique perspective. But Lillian really does form a bond with these kids. And so for someone who kind of had nothing in her life, like she was just kind of floundering. Literally living in the attic of her mom's house. Yes. Now she's kind of living for these kids. And the kids really kind of take to her because she's the first person who's shown a whole lot of interest in them and and essentially like stopped their world to become part of the kids' world, Bessie and Roland's world. And that hasn't happened for them before because before they've been hidden, they've been cast away. They And she was like, oh, no, let's go burn in the front yard. Let's go. Hey, you guys are getting a little frustrated. Hop in the pool. I don't care if you got your clothes on. You know, I mean, she really did try like, let's try to manage your your situations as opposed to hide the fact that you exist. Right. Let's try to make you functioning children in whatever this world looks like for you as opposed to making you some sort of out, social outcasts. So I think from, an, from a broader perspective, this sort of notion of inclusion and dealing with people as they are and getting them – I mean, obviously she had to protect the kids from other people because they could burn you and set you on fire, which is – frowned upon in play dates. (laughs) No one's going to invite you back to a play date when you set your kids, their kids on fire. But at the end of the book, Lillian is faced with a pretty big life choice. And I feel like this was made kind of flippantly by Madison and Jasper, because let's be clear, Lillian hates Jasper. And I feel like that is a mutual relationship. Like Jasper really could care less if Lillian was there or not. He's just appreciative that she keeps the kids at bay. Well, Lillian like admits that she loves and has always loved Madison. Well, we could see that happening. I mean, which makes a whole lot of sense. Sure. Which is why she took the fall for her. But 
Jasper is just not a kind person either. I mean, he is a very stereotypical politician. He's all in it for himself, for what the um, optics look like of Uh a situation. He's all about what is this going to do to his future and his career. He doesn't really care about what collateral damage happens along the way. And Bessie and Roland are collateral damage in his kind of in his mind's eye because they don't contribute to what he deems as to be his future, which we can all assume is to become president of the United States. Kind of in a drastic situation, Madison just kind of says like, hey, so, I mean, you want the kids? You Do you want Bessie and Roland? She uses this like certain word. Guardianship. Yes. Yeah. So Madison's like, oh, it's, it's guardianship, you know? Yes. Like, do you want... Do you, do you want to be their caretaker, essentially, right. full-time, permanently, as long as you want, however you want? We'll pay for everything, which, again, just for, infuriated me. Like, we don't want these kids, so we'll, we'll pay for them, but you take care of them. You do everything for them, and we'll just foot the bill, whatever they want. To Lillian's credit, she's like, yes. I want these kids. I'll be their guardian. I'll be their parent. I'll adopt them if you want me to. Then she goes to Bessie and Roland after she gets off the phone with Madison. And she's like, hey, you guys want me to be your parent? And they were both like, yeah. yes. <laughs> Please. Like, are you sure? And they're like, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, is sad that they're so hungry for affection mm-hmm. that they'll take this person whom they've known for three months over someone who was their father and their stepmother, whom they've lived with for years. But this is the first person who's, like, connected with them and tried to get to know them and tried to understand them and make them, quote-unquote, normal, whatever normal looks like. But to be able to integrate them into society and not have them feel like social outcasts that have to be hidden away, which is how they felt for years. Imagine meeting fire children when Lillian first meets the kids at their grandparents' house, Bessie, like, bites her. They fall mm-hmm. in the pool. Mm-hmm. She's, like, holding her head under the water. But Lillian was like, okay, you know. I, I can, can work with this. this. I got to, I got this. A wicked child was the most beautiful thing in the world. That was one of, like, Lillian's quotes. And it's like, you know, she she knew they had issues. and then Sure. But, yeah, they— But she came from issues. You know, I mean, Lillian didn't grow up with this storybook childhood that Madison had and apparently Jasper had as well. Um, So it was really—like, she could relate to these kids, like, outcasts, thrown away. Nobody really wants them. And here she could be the person that— she needed when she was growing up she could be that person to Bessie and Roland and it was her way of like giving back essentially her way of coming for full circle one of the things I thought was really interesting is that the reason so they I watched an interview with the author with Kevin Wilson and I'm always interested into how these come to life how these sort of topics come to life right And so he said that he had a fear when he was younger that he would just spontaneously combust. And so that's when he kind of got the idea. And he's like, well, what if I wrote a book about kids who spontaneously combust? Because this is his third novel. There has been talk of – there's been a lot of requests for there to be a sequel about this. But he has pretty much left it at – I think these characters all left in a good spot. So I don't feel as though we're going to move forward with a sequel because everybody kind of 
Like, he feels like he tied it up with a nice bow. Like, Jasper's going to go on and do Jasper things. Poor Timothy is going to finally wind up at the home for spontaneously combustible children. Yeah, he's checked in. <laughs> he he has a bed. Yeah. He just hasn't occupied it yet. But at some point, Timothy is going to become part of the fold of Jasper's outcast children. And poor Madison's going to end up childless, right? Because... She's not going to have more kids with Jasper because he's just going to keep fathering issue. Kind of spontaneously combustible children. Yeah. And I, I am interested to know, like, kind of if they would ever grow out of it. That's kind of one of the outstanding questions that I had. Because I just feel like, you know, the movie Inside Out, anger, like he was always on fire, played by Lewis Black, who is the perfect person to play anger in any movie. It's just kind of how I felt about it. That's how it it portrayed to me was that he was that these kids just got so angry that they would spontaneously combust. But you know, at some point you start to regulate your emotions. If you're doing that much yoga, that much meditation, you're swimming that much, and you've got this gel all over you all the time. That at some point, maybe you'll outgrow it. But they never really. I mean, the kids are like, it's one summer. This book takes place essentially over one summer. So there's a lot that happens in that summer, but it's very difficult to kind of foresee the future when you're three months into the book. (laughs) True. I mean, they did ultimately set the house on fire. and Which is kind of how they ended up not, they fell out of favor with Jasper when they set the house on fire. And Carl, you know, told her there's a lot of smoke damage, and but the house will survive. Their mansion in Nashville will go on to fight another day. Were there any other quotes that stood out to you? So, like, the whole, like, like Jasper was, like, raised in a nice family and just, mm-hmm. like, spoke to me of, like, privilege. So mm-hmm. a lot of the quotes that spoke to me were about, like, being poor or, like, being a poor person around wealthy people. Sure. Uh, But a lot of times when I think I'm being self-sufficient, I'm really just learning to live without the things that I need. Mm. Truth. Right. Because if you're at that level, it's like, do I pay the electric bill or do we get the water turned off this month? Or do we buy groceries? Or but Yeah. So you think you're being self-sufficient by choosing one when actually it would just be great if you could have all three. Yeah. Wealth could normalize just about anything. They just could spend the enough money and make everything every pro- go away. Every problem disappear, or so they think. If you were rich and you were a dude, it really felt like if you just followed a certain number of steps, you could pretty much do whatever you wanted. Seems pretty apropos still You're today. a white male in the United States of America and most other countries in the world, you know. You can get away with a lot of things. They don't even think about things. And you add money on top of being a white male, and you kind of get to write your own ticket, right? Good to go. (laughs) Being rich, of course, meant it was easier to just keep getting what you wanted. It took less and less effort to keep it. So even though Jasper becomes Secretary of State and his child catches on fire on television and his wife drops the child, it's just like... They pay off the newspapers or do whatever they have to do to make it some minor story and spin it in a way that's beneficial to him. Well, and Carl even talked about that. Carl said that Madison's the one who went into gear and said that Timothy's shirt was overly starched in anticipation of the (laughs) the the press conference. (laughs) And somehow that sparked and that's what caused him to spontaneously combust. And everybody's like, cool, we believe that. Yeah. 
I mean, it certainly seems more plausible, I guess, than my child spontaneously combust. But it's almost like, well, let's just spin this in our favor so that then there's no more questions about it. And then Timothy goes into a rehab facility for six months so he can be intensely watched over how the burns that didn't occur to him happened. Because that was the thing is that it also showed on television that the child had nothing Nothing wrong wrong with him while the mom is like burned her dress is singed the kid's like i'm good <laughs> and we didn't even talk about uh that crazy doctor with the like shed treatments oh my goodness dr cannon yes he's like oh they could be prophets or demons yeah or possessed by demons yeah like- you know what we just we just need an exorcism that'll take care of them yeah sure modern day exorcism uh-huh that'll get rid of it That'll definitely take care of any. Well, that's of these what money issues. buys you is you know a retired doctor who won't say nothing to nobody. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what was your opinion of this book overall? Did you enjoy it? Did you? I enjoyed it. Super quick. We read. It was super interesting. Yeah, like a lot of, like you said, dealing with emotions and kids and their development and all the different relationship dynamics and then the whole like privilege thing. It really spoke to me. I felt like this was a very, like, while it dealt with a lot of things that we've read about multiple times, it was definitely written in a very unique way. I mean, there's not many kids that spontaneously combust, and there's definitely not many books about kids who spontaneously combust. Exactly. So I thought from that perspective, it was definite, it was a very good read, and it was engaging from the beginning because of this sort of power struggle between Madison and Lillian, as well as Lillian trying to still appease Madison by helping her, by Lillian becoming the nanny for these 10-year-olds and doing a good job with it. It just was this, I don't know how there's, one of the quotes that I read was, in every relationship, there's a power imbalance. And Madison definitely had the balance of power in that relationship. It made me realize that, that that that's true in a lot of relationships. I can think of at least two or three relationships that I'm in that there's definitely a power imbalance, that one person holds more power than the other. And I don't think it's a intentional thing. I don't think it's a stated thing. I think it's just a personality thing that there's one more dominant, more one person who's going to be kind of the the power player in that relationship and there's one who's going to either go along, along with it. Along for the ride. Yeah, they're going to go along with it or they aren't. And, you know, there are some people who you couldn't you can't have two alpha players in a relationship. It doesn't work. So there's always got to be someone who's more allowable for that person to have all the power. Right. And so it was really interesting kind of a dichotomy to see that Madison held the power in the relationship of Madison and Lillian, but Jasper held the power in the relationship between Jasper and Madison. Exactly. So even you can see the pendulum swing even in the different relationships that people are in. And I even feel in the the relationship between Carl and Lillian, there's not really a relationship there, but I mean that – you know, Carl definitely was the power player in that relationship because he's he the worked one. for Jasper. <laughs> he worked for Jasper, but he also Ultimate. managed the logistics. He managed the image. He and managed the optics. He managed all of that stuff. 
And then there is Mary who was just like, I don't care about any of you. I'm just here to collect a paycheck. Yeah. Lillian was like, I want to study her for a year. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mary was like, she's awesome. Whatever. I mean, literally the house is burning down from the kids at the end of the book. And she's like taking the pots and pans. Okay. I'm going to get my nice kitchenware. And leaving the house. And she's like, well, if the house burns down, at least I got my pots and pans. Yeah. She knew about the twins. Was like, whatever. You know? Right. Right. So I knew about Timothy earlier than anybody else. She probably did, actually, because she spent more time with Timothy probably than Madison or Jasper did. But I I do think it was a very interesting way to write about relationships and to write about, you know, kids and emotions and and different things. And so it was also entertaining. There's a lot of like dark humor. Oh my gosh, Lillian's sense of humor. Tons of curse words. This is not suitable yes. for kids kind of book, but yeah. don't listen to this audiobook with your kids in the car. Um, but Lillian has a dark sense of humor, which I think helped her relate to the kids because the kids were like not, I mean, they're used to like happy people always trying to appease them. Make everything look nice on the outside. Exactly. And then here Lillian is like, you guys are messed up oh, and I sorry. dig it. <laughs> she's like in the car, like who's trying to play easy listening? And she's like, it made me want to slip into a hot bath and dream about killing everyone I knew. <laughs> I'm just like, oh my god! But it was good. Lots of yes, I lots definitely of laugh out loud moments. I definitely enjoyed this words. book a lot for sure. Um, okay, so we've talked a lot about the book. Now, what are we going to drink? Well, there was no wine in this book. There was not, but there was a lot of fire in this book. So I got a little creative. Okay, definitely. We're going to talk about some wine innovations. Because Lillian was innovative super, in the way she dealt with creative, the kids. Uh-huh. exactly. So creative wine uh, wineries. So we're going to be drinking a red blend from Tablas Creek Vineyard. Okay. And what makes it innovative? So many things. Okay. Well, you know what? (laughs) Why don't you pour us a glass? We'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll find out all the innovative things that Tablas has done for our red blend. I'm ready. Welcome back. So, Keegan, uh, you have poured us a gorgeous red blend. This is definitely darker um, than some of the wines that we have drank. Tell me more about it. Today, we are drinking a 2018 Cotes de Tablas from Tablas Creek Vineyard, and it is a Grenache, Syrah, Cunois, Morvedra blend. I like all the words that you're saying, and the fact that they are all in the glass together, I think is going to make me very happy. Good stuff. Um, So wine innovations, it's tough out there being a farmer and dealing with weather and coronavirus, but all these issues inevitably lead to higher prices and sometimes lower production, therefore lower supply. It's expensive to have insurance. Uh, We've talked about before uh, issues from fires and smoke taint. Yes, our inaugural podcast, uh, The Book of Polly, was all about smoke taint. And so that did make the most sense for us to talk about with fire, but... We've already covered it. We covered it. And so if you want to learn more about smoke taint, we invite you to please revisit our inaugural podcast on The Book of Polly and Smoke Taint, where Keegan definitely goes into great detail about how that affects wine. But also, insurance is expensive, and it keeps going up in price every year, and coverage keeps going down. And so one... One example, uh, Chapelet in Napa pays over a million dollars a year now oh my in days. insurance. 
And they've got those expensive Napa grapes, but yes. they are right in the heart of a bunch of fires and in I California. Feel like California fires are getting worse. More and more common, longer, starting in the earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's more variable weather nowadays, so it's making it harder to predict. Um, harvest times are getting pushed back later and later, which tends to be more issues a lot of times, too. Sometimes it rains at the wrong times, which promotes more pests. But most of the wine in the world is grown in a Mediterranean climate or what's considered to be a Mediterranean climate. Um, so irrigation is either restricted or not used. Um, but irrigation is definitely an option for some people. And Lillian got really creative with the kids, with Bessie and Roland, in ways that she could keep them... Less on fire. <laughs> productive. Right. What are some things in wine innovation that are happening that are keeping these vineyards productive despite all of these crazy outside influences that are happening? So one thing is before you even, if you have this option, before you even plant your vineyard is to think about where you're planting it. So planting at higher altitudes, I kind of thought of this as when she would move them just into a different place. Like, oh, we're in a stressful situation. Let's go outside. Mm -hmm. So you can just plant at higher altitudes. Um, It's not always cooler, but a lot of times it is. And at least there's less periods of time of intense heat. And you also get cooler nights. Um, But sometimes that also means poorer soils and less water. And the weather is more erratic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. Another thing you can do when you're setting up your vineyard is to change the aspect, which is the way the vineyards face predominantly. Um, And that's kind of just like moving away from a stressful situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But typically the quote unquote best vineyards in the northern hemisphere are facing south or southeast to maximize sun exposure. So north in the southern hemisphere. Um, But we're kind of getting away from that now. Like it's not it's not necessarily ideal to have your vineyards facing south. Really? Because you don't need all that sun. You're not having any issues with ripeness Mm -hmm. because it's warmer now. Talk to any farmer. You're harvesting later and later. The season's longer. Uh, We're growing in just all new places. So English sparkling wine wasn't a thing 20 years ago, Hmm. but now it's ripe enough in England. And since they share similar soil to champagne, they're making some pretty good quality sparkling wines. And I think you've mentioned this fact before, but in the United States, all 50 states produce wine, which is not something that we would have thought of even 20 years ago. Absolutely. Middle of the country, Canada even. Mexico. But yeah, heat. (laughs) What do you do about heat? Um, So some farmers spray sunscreen on their grapes uh, in an attempt to prevent scorching in temperatures of over 100 degrees. Mm -hmm. So I kind of related that to the Teflon spray she used. Yes. Um, But sunburn sensitivity is higher for vineyards suffering water stress, which again plays into that. Where'd you plant your vineyard? How much water did you get that year? So grapes can actually burn? Actually sunburn. Really? I mean, they're... Is that when they become raisins? No. <laughs> it would just be more like burnt. I mean, I guess you would typically break break the skin. So there's also shade cloths. <laughs> it's like a towel sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lillian was just throwing a towel on them. Sometimes. that's all you got. Yep. Um, but not legal everywhere. 
drought, I was kind of relating that to anger because mm-hmm. you can't really, I mean, you can, but you not, can't necessarily do anything about it. But a lot of wells and reservoirs are drying up uh, when the rains are coming is changing. Uh, the amount of water available in general is decreasing. So it's just oftentimes not enough water to sustain all the grapes on the vines. Mm-hmm. So sometimes they just snip, snip, and they have to cut some clusters so the vine will survive. Oh, geez. Irrigation, we've kind of mentioned. That's like shower time, you know, like, oh, my gosh, get in the shower, right? <laughs> um, so a typical vine needs about 20 inches of rain annually, depending on the soil, of course. There's that always... doesn't seem like a lot. but really doesn't need a lot, for sure. And there is a negative stigma around irrigation. So the reverse of that is like dry farming is kind of like thought of as ideal and restricting yields is always a good thing, but that's not necessarily always the case. Um, But some farmers do use it to make lower quality wine because you're getting more output. You're getting more yield, but you're getting less flavor. So you have to make some compromises then. There's going to be some give and take that happens. Well, I mean, it's technology, right? We're innovating. So there's flood irrigation, which you take water down a canal into a flat vineyard. And that's mostly known for in uh, Mendoza, Argentina. And it's kind of this like very ancient complex irrigation canals that were set up. And they're using the snowmelt from the Andes to get enough water into their vineyards. That's innovation right there. Um, But the most widely used system is a drip line or trickle irrigation. And that is a targeted amount at the root of the vines. Um, So it's a very small amount of water used and large amounts only when necessary. And it was developed in the 1960s in Israel and Australia, which are both Famously, (laughs) well-known to be dry places. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also use overhead sprayers, which like mimic rain, but they're obviously very inefficient and they get Mm -hmm. the leaves wet, which tends to lead to potential disease issues. Um, There's also something called regulated deficit irrigation, and that's scheduling irrigation to use mild water stress. And that kind of reduces the vegetative growth, which puts more emphasis uh, for the vine to focus on the berries and ripening the berries. And some wineries are buying and hauling treated toilet water to use for irrigation. Really? I thought that was kind of interesting. That's Um, very interesting. It's a place in California, and they did not name the winery. Well, I can understand. Yeah. But I also feel like, I mean, if we just, we did a podcast uh talking about biodynamics and we talked about all the different manure and parts of cows that were used in the compost, it's not really a whole lot different than using treated toilet water. I mean, treated toilet water at least has got some of that compost taken out of it. Well, it's like reusing it. Sure. You know, so. I feel like that's a a very efficient way to not only water your vineyard, but also treat your vineyard, fertilize your vineyard. I mean, treated toilet water is pretty much tap water, so I wouldn't think there's any stuff in there. At least I hope not. Right, right. Um, You could probably get it cheaper if you got it untreated. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So another uh, case study that I thought was interesting, Newton Vineyards, which is owned by Louis Vuitton Moed Hennessy, they lost 65 of 70 of their acres. Really? Most of their wine in the barrel, their winery, and their headquarters. 
in 2020. And so their innovation is to plan to rebuild the winery mostly underground. <laughs> really? And I thought that was interesting. They're that thinking is interesting. It's going to take 10 to 20 years to replant the vineyard, but they're going to have fire breaks and an underground water system. And then they're also focusing on uh, forest management. So they're planting the right trees. Uh, so they had some eucalyptus trees, which smell beautiful, but they act as fire accelerants oh, geez. with the oils that they produce. Yeah, I could see that. So that did not help them. No. There's also hail, which... I don't know how that would tie into nothing to see here, mm -hmm. um, but it's always kind of been a classic climate issue that farmers have had to deal with. It physically damages the vines and the fruit, makes it uh, more prone to rot and disease. Um, so what some people have come to do is what they call cloud seeding. Oh, really? <laughs> and they're they're adding... Silver iodide, potassium iodide, or dry ice, a.k.a. frozen carbon dioxide, and they're dispersing them into potential hail-forming clouds by plane or land-based cannon. Okay. So they're, like, shooting this into clouds in hopes that the rainfall will, f like, form and create ice, and then it decreases the severity of the hail. Not very proven. They also have... Seems like a Hail Mary. <laughs> literally a Hail Mary. Right. But they do have what they call hail cannons. <laughs> um, they're supposed to generate shock waves, which is supposed to disrupt the formation of hail. Interesting. Obviously, this is not proven. Um, it sounds good, though. I yeah. mean, it's definitely... I'm convinced. Uh, but they don't have many other options. Often... Burgundy has big issues with hail mm -hmm. and uh, nets along the lines of towels also kind of um, are banned in France and they also block the sun. So there's less sunshine, um, but they are legal in Mendoza, which is another place that has issues with hail. Okay. Um, but hail is said to cost France more than 500 million euros a year. So it is an just issue. Just in wine production? Mm-hmm. Wow. That's a lot of money. And if they could just... Put up some towels, that might help. Hail cannons are not enough. Hail cannons <laughs> are not enough. Um, so frost is another big issue to deal with. Uh, once again, it's like picking your best site is usually the most effective way. And I kind of related this to the yoga. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You centered, you're going to plant it on slope so like cool air doesn't... You're trying to find your balance. Yeah, your exactly. Center. You don't want the cool air to just like settle in one place. Um, you can also just pick naturally later budding varieties. Um, but once again, you have to have this set up before you have a vineyard already. Um, so another new thing in Bordeaux, uh, first plantings are expected to start in 2021. They've added more grapes to be allowed to be used. Really? Well, you know, Bordeaux is... They're locked down in what you can plant. Pretty rigid. So they've added four red grapes and two white grapes. Oh, do tell. Uh, well, Toriga Nacional, which some people might be familiar with as a port grape. It's pretty vigorous, but it's mid-ripening, so that helps. Uh, there's also Marcelon, which is a cross between Cabernet Sauvignon and Grenache. Castellet, which is nearly extinct, but it's resistant to pests and late budding. Um, and then in Napa, not Bordeaux, there's no rules. So you can just 
plant whatever you want. So in the future, we could see less Cabernet Sauvignon and more Zinfandel, Charbonneau, Petit Syrah, Torriga Nacional, Tempranillo, Alianico, all these grapes that are a little more apt to warmer climates. It will not make me sad if there are more Zinfandels on the market. Yes, ma'am. Love it. Um, So I just want to briefly touch, too, on COVID. It's kind of changed a lot of things, but a lot of wineries have created more outdoor experiences. They've invested in heaters and fans, and they've often had to take in less reservations, but that kind of gives you more interaction with your guests. Mm -hmm. And a lot of wineries have focused on direct-to-consumer shipping. I have been to several wineries since COVID has happened, and... I am always amazed at the amount of attentiveness that is given to us now um, because there are reduced numbers, because there is more people that they're trying to employ, but there's fewer reservations that are being taken. I got to go to an extraordinary experience for a harvest party at one of the vineyards, and we got to have wine straight from the barrel through a wine. Yeah. It was amazing, and it was so good that... Even the the vineyard owner, one of the vineyard owners was like, this is so amazing. We weren't going to start selling this, but we're going to go ahead and start selling it tonight, even though it's not ready to bottle yet. But we're going to go ahead and you can pre-order. So it was just a great kind of experience for those of us who were there. There was only about 100 of us who were there. Normally they have like 250 people. So it was a really interesting experience to benefit from because of COVID. You know, it wasn't kind of mass produced. It was a more intimate one-on-one. I felt like I got a lot of time with the vineyard and with the owners and really understood the winemaking process and how they do it. We'll talk more about how they do it at a later podcast, but it was, I think that COVID has brought a lot of that kind of intimacy back to the vineyard owners and who's consuming the wine. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's great that a lot of these vineyards now are doing more wine club kind of things because we can all, we can all benefit from that, especially those of us who have multiple subscriptions to a few wineries. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So uh, Tablas Creek here also has their own wine club, if you will, Mm -hmm. because they're, Kind of famous in the wine world for working with all the Rhone grapes. Okay. And they did it legally. Um, but once again, we're drinking a, it's a, an ode to the Southern Rhone. So it's all Southern Rhone grapes. Okay. You often see GSM on labels. That's Grenache, Syrah, Morvedra. Um, but this one is 45% Grenache, 35% Syrah, 12% Cunwa, and 10% Morvedra. So about half of their production is red wine, 35% is white wine, 15% is rosé. So they were pioneers of the Rhone movement in California, dubbed the Rhone Rangers. The Rhone Rangers. I love that term. That's amazing. Uh, So (laughs) Congrats on that. Yeah. Two families, the Perren family, proprietors of Chateau de Beaucastel and the Haas family of vineyard brands worked together to find California soil to grow Rhone varieties in, and they thought it was well-suited where they landed in Paso Robles, and it's equally owned and run by the two families since 1987, and they purchased 120 acres uh, 12 miles from the Pacific Ocean, and it's now the Adelaide District west of Paso Robles. Um, so they legally... 
and ported cutting starting in 1990. So no suitcase clones here, <laughs> um, which is a bureaucratic process. They underwent a mandatory three-year process to ensure the vines were virus-free, and they have multiple clones each of Grenache Noir, Mervedra, Syrah, Cunoa, Roussan, Viognier, Marsan, Grenache Blanc, and Picpoul Blanc, um, as well as a variety of rootstocks. And they didn't actually get to start planting until 1994. And they also constructed their own nursery, which was pretty nice. unique. Uh, and they used it to produce bench-grafted vines for other wineries, but they don't do that anymore. Okay. Um, so they are organic, certified since 2003, and biodynamic since 2010, and they were certified in 2017. So they have their own herd of sheep, mm. alpacas, and they have two guard donkeys. <laughs> we will keep this PG so that we can be on every podcast <laughs> platform, but you can imagine the word that we are trying to uh, incorporate as the donkeys. Their names are Fiona and Dottie. Aww. So I'm sure they're good guard donkeys. I'm sure they're great guard donkeys. Yeah. Uh, they also use cover crops to minimize erosion. And they planted fruit trees among the vines and some insect-friendly flowering plants. And they also have owl boxes to control those pesky rodent pests. Gophers. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they also have a hive of beeves. Um, but they're kind of also... They have a whole ecosystem, it seems like. Totally living in the biodynamic dream. They are. They are very much living in the biodynamic world. Uh, they were also the United States' first regenerative organic certified vineyard in 2020. So they got the whole gamut. Okay. Uh, most of their vineyard is dry farmed. They do use limited irrigation, especially in the early years, to help get the vines established. Mm -hmm. um, but this kind of forces the vine's roots to go deep down into the bedrock. And in the end, that makes them more apt to deal with periods of drought better. So this is elevation around 1,500 feet, around 450 meters, pretty shallow, rocky limestone soils. And it's pretty hot. They have hot summer days, but nights are often cool mm -hmm. thanks to their closeness to the ocean. And they also get an ample amount of rainfall in the winter. Let's drink some wine. I am way ahead of you. <laughs> They're pretty unique. Since they are working with so many different grapes, they hand harvest all the grapes and ferment them separately. And when they sit down to do the blend, usually the spring after, they have 120 roundabout different lots that they choose wow. from to make this blend that we're drinking today. So they ferment 120 different lots independently? No, they're not that many. I don't okay. think they said that, but they're all the grapes are fermented separately. Okay. And then they figure out lots from there. Okay. To make it all work. Uh, native yeast, as they are organic and biodynamic. Um, so they're fermenting in stainless steel and wood, but it is unfined and unfiltered. So there's no egg whites. Okay. So it's, is it vegan? They also use sheep and alpacas. So it's a we're very walking that line again. Yeah. It's ready to consume now, but it could age for a decade or more. Uh, but they blended it in 2019 and aged it for a year in bottle. 
This is pretty standard cellar temperature drink. I would recommend like a burgundy glass to drink this. Um, this is very generous on the fruit side. I was going to say it smells very fruity to me. I smell a lot of raspberries, blackberries. Black cherry, uh, maybe some blue fruits in here as well. Kind of got a spicy element to it, I believe. It's quite delicious, though. Black pepper. Um, love the blends. You definitely can smell the black pepper, for sure. Um, I think this has a little bit more Syrah, and that's really coming out, at least for me. The spiciness mm -hmm. and the minerality. Mm -hmm. It's pretty elevated acidity for it to be. This is 14.5% alcohol. Uh, I do believe it's pretty well balanced, though. And you did decant it for us. We did decant uh, for about an hour, which I would recommend. It's definitely opening up more than when I pop the cork. So what's, what's the your... difference between decanting the wine and bruising the wine? Because you can vigorously swirl and not bruise but then you can also bruise the wine. And I don't know what the... I've never tasted a bruised wine. Once okay. again, I think that's more when you're dealing with older wines. Okay. They might like lose their life and the We valid. do not want an old wine to lose its life because they vigorously <laughs> decant it. But we're not really decanting. It's really aerating using a okay. decanter. Okay. But it's just a little tight. I feel like it does need to open up. It is unfined and unfiltered though. So with age, this might have sediment when you would need to decant. I mean, don't put it in the blender just because, like, I feel like that's a little bit wrong. But I feel like you should never put wine in a blender. I've actually never tried it, though, so that might be a fun experiment for us in the future. Okay. We can so taste the difference. that's another podcast episode that will happen in the future is uh, whether or not we can make a difference in a blender. It's kind of chalky on the palate. Like, the tannins are definitely present. I think this has more structure than previous vintages I've had from them. It's also kind of got this soy sauce thing going on for me. Okay, I did not taste <laughs> soy sauce at all, but I will keep drinking to taste the soy sauce. Uh, what about bittersweet chocolate? Kind of got a little like a, mm -hmm. like a darker chocolate. Like a 70% cacao. I can mm -hmm. see that. Yes, I can. I, I definitely have that over the soy sauce. I just kind of like a wildness to it. I don't know if that's my envisioning. I crazy Southern Roan. <laughs> uh, I think you can never go wrong uh, with a wild wine. Uh, I think this would be amazing with anything you made with beef, like okay. a good beef stew in mm -hmm. the winter, or like some braised short ribs. I think the winery recommends as a good food pairing as well. What about for our vegan friends? Um, or vegetarian friends. Okay, yeah. Whew. Yeah. So I love I love the dairy there. But like a mushroom pasta, like a okay. mushroom and cream sauce pasta, I think mm -hmm. would be really good with this. I could see that. Yes, like a heavy, almost like an Alfredo with mushrooms and penne. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely some some intensity here. I think this will get better in a couple years. We're like spending is, a lot of time swirling and enjoying this well, wine. Well, I think it's developing in the glass, too, even though we've decanted for an hour plus and it's been swirling in our glass for some time as well. Mm -hmm. Didn't get too much meat from it. Like we, I think our original smell was fruit, mm -hmm. and I think that will develop with time. Okay. But yeah. So for those of us who do not have a 
who have a less than refined palate as you do, what does that mean that it will develop over time? Well, you're going to get more of those tertiary notes. So, so it, it's like is, as it starts to open up, more of the depth of flavor will start to reveal itself. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but it'll be like more dried fruit than fresh fruit. Okay. And maybe it'll be more soy earthy, sauce and soy sauce, <laughs> black pepper, the soy sauce thing. Okay, and so like less of the cacao and the fruits that we had talked about earlier. It might still be chocolatey and but maybe the tannins will smooth out. Okay. It'll be like more integrated. I'm still waiting for the soy sauce. I feel like that's <laughs> I I feel like that's going to be a revelation for me when I can taste soy sauce in the wine. But I also feel like that doesn't really go with braised ribs, soy sauce. I kind of smell ribs. more soy sauce than I necessarily taste. Okay, it. that's fair. That's fair. But I'm like feel leather. Like I feel like the leather would be more prominent with time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they're phenomenal producer. They've done everything right. Like I said, they jumped through all the appropriate hoops and did all the right things to get all the plantings of all. 13 or 18, depending on how you count, of the <laughs> Rhone varietals. It depends if you count Grenache Noir, Grenache Blanc is separate. Okay. That's how you get those kind of two different numbers. But they work with all the Rhone grapes, and for good reason, I think. It's a blend, and you work with what the vintage gives you each year. Well, we've had an excellent book. We've had an excellent wine. Uh, head over to readingbetweenthewines.blog to learn more about the wines that we drank and to obviously see the book that we read today. We want to thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate you. You keep us in wine and books, which is exactly what we need to make Reading Between the Wines a success. Uh, a huge shout out to our amazing audio engineer, Colin Caston, our executive producer, Stacy Grow, and to our social media expert in JM Social Solutions. Yes, so thank you. Please join us next time. And until then, always keep your glass half full. Cheers. Cheers.